Welcome to Journal Spotting. Wondering what to do with the post-op patient in front of you with new AF, who drinks buckets of tea, takes multivitamins for dinner, and is just getting over pneumonia. Your ears are in the right place. This is a general medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scour the journals so you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back to Journal Spotting, listeners. We assume many of you have had to repurpose your medical journals as fuel to keep the house warm, or more likely, you've cancelled your subscriptions because, well, UK doctors had a real-term pay cut over 25% in the last 12 years. Either way, you might not have read your BMJ this month. But fear not, Journal Spotting is here to try and keep the evidence-based lights on for you. Thanks very much, John. Yeah, great to have you back on the show, John. You've been away for a little while. Um, last time you messaged me, you were, I don't know, out kayaking on some beautiful Greek sea or something. Uh, how was that? Uh, yeah, it was lovely. I have returned uh, with a much higher risk of skin cancer. And lovely, good. I've gained about 10 kilos in feta, so it's good. It's a feta. You're, you're, you are looking a bit like a feta. That's terrible. Um, what's your what's your protection like for your for your head? Are you a hat man? Are you a factor fifty and most, much of it? What do, what do you do? That is a, a very good question, Barney. Uh, actually, I'm going to plug a dermatology uh, recommended brand of uh, sun cream, which is actually made by some dermatologists in Bristol called Altruist. Uh, so, yeah. if there are any Altruist um, people listening and they want to throw some money at the podcast then by all means get in touch because i absolutely covered myself in your products <laughs> how are you bonnie <laughs> i um i'm good thank you john may i'm people keep asking me what i've been up to in life and generally in life um i people ask me how are you barney i think well i'm okay because my kids are okay so um yeah all good you know life's going on things like sp- kids are going to school like feeling very old but hey mm. it's all good they're still alive they're still alive oh, they and they've go. still got all all of their limbs. It's been like four and a half limbs and he's got he's got four, four and a half years. He's got four <laughs> limbs. He's got four and a half limbs. Growing new ones is amazing. Right. Well, well, look, listeners, if you are looking for up-to-date information on climate change and how it's affecting our health, go to our Climate Zones episodes. Um, if actually you want to hear some really amazing and inspirational doctors covering loads of different topics like psychedelic medications and or their complex lives as a doctor in Ukraine, go and listen to our interview specials. But if you want us to wash your brains with a med- the latest medical literature, listen on. Yeah, there's loads of content on the on the podcast to explore, but we're going to try and do our roundup a little bit differently today. We're going to cover some evidence-related topics rather than the sort of completely separate articles. So see what you think. Um, If you think it's good, then, you know, drop us some feedback. If you hate it, drop us some feedback. Either way, the shit sandwich. Yeah, or just drop the feedback if you hate it. Just tell (laughs) us you love us. Just make us feel cosy. I'm going to cover a whole bunch of really like fascinating diet articles, um, and this includes the benefits of tea, time-restricted eating, and um, the evidence behind vitamin supplements. And I am going to get your heart racing with some slightly offbeat articles about atrial fibrillation. And before you skip past all that, because AF makes you want to retrain as a florist, 
be warned that I'm going to be covering some scenarios that you'll definitely get called about either as an SHO, registrar or whatever your role. That's brilliant. Sounds interesting. Good stuff. Um, as always, listeners, please share us, share the podcast with anyone you might, you might think is interested. Yeah. And uh, feel free to email us journalspotting at gmail.com with any pointless emails that you want to send our way. And also, if you want a journal spotting mug, uh, you know, get in touch. You're about to hear about the benefits of drinking tea. So you should Absolutely. probably have there a we mug. Go. Or, or not, John. Don't spoiler alert. Come on. Um, and if you want to buy us a cup of coffee to help us live longer and continue this content, uh, feel free at www buymeacoffee.com forward slash journal spotting. All right, let's do it. Barney, you're up. All right. We have covered coffee numerous times on this podcast. You could say we've covered it to death or possibly even to prolong life. But many of you poor things, you'll be sitting there with your cup of steaming hot tea and you want to know how is that going to affect your health? And as many of you know, in the UK, tea is a really staple drink um, in the UK and beyond, so many countries. And there has been previous studies which have shown there's quite a reasonable link between drinking green tea and reducing things like all-cause mortality and possibly cancer. And these are mainly in places like China and Japan. And the results of these studies in black tea have been a bit inconsistent so far. So Barney, just to clarify, when you say black tea, uh, you're referring to a leaf rather than there being no milk. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not just that you don't have milk in it. Absolutely. Um, not really that relevant, actually, John. But um, did you know that the color of tea corresponds to the amount of caffeine they have? So yellow and white teas have the least, then green, then oolong, and then black teas actually have the most caffeine. Fascinating. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. That's what I wanted. That was a, a pause. You had to say something. On with, the, on, with the, on with the article. Yeah. Anyway. Tea of any kind is thought to benefit largely from the polyphenols and flavonoids, which, and these are basically the type of like phytochemicals, the word, and they're found in teas, coffees, fruits, vegetables, and all kinds of good stuff. So they're meant to be really good for your health. Um, they have antioxidant properties, but they also affect the flavor, coloring, aroma, etc. And these flavonoids, and they these, these type of flavonoids are associated with reduced cardiovascular and cerebrovascular disease, and they're also known to reduce oxidative stress. Bonnie, you do really love an antioxidant. And I was going to give you some stick about how you've basically not spent much time in hospitals recently, which is probably why you're picking like a tea article. However, then I was thinking to myself, actually, what is the drug that is most widely distributed in a hospital? Well, it's got to be tea. You know, if tea is an active compound, what is the like... More than paracetamol. There are cups of tea being poured out all the time. So go on. What does tea do, Barney? Make us immortal. No, that's, actually, that's actually great. I love that because we complain about so much about the diet of our patients. But maybe it's fine because they're having tea all the time. Well, you're about to tell us. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. So this study was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. And it used, as many studies seem to be doing, um, the UK Biobank database. And they followed up about 500,000 adult participants over 11 years with questionnaires and going over their medical data. Yeah. And just as a reminder to listeners, the UK Biobank is pretty amazing. It's a collection of like in-depth genetic and health information on roughly half a million British people. And it's pretty cool because if you're a researcher and you've got a good idea, you can basically just apply to have access to it. So yeah, 
unlike the British pound, it's um, one of our great exports. Yeah, it's brilliant. I was actually having a look and um, at different time points, they release different data as it comes out. Um, and I did have a look and they don't have any decent data on cough. So it's not going to be something I'm going to be using anytime soon, but have a look at the website. It's really interesting. Going back to this study, they asked people about the amount of tea they drank, whether they added milk and sugar, the preference of tea temperature and um, what other beverages they like to drink. They took all this data and they tried really hard to adjust for things that confounders such as smoking, age, sex, obesity, and socioeconomic class, okay? Right, headline. Drinking two or more cups of tea a day, mostly black tea, but it was a mixture, reduced all-cause mortality compared to no tea with a hazard ratio of 0.87, and obviously that was significant. And this was consistent regardless of whether you added milk or sugar and whether you also concurrently drank coffee or not. Hmm. And uh, that's interesting, Barney. So did they talk about the temperature of the tea as well? I know there's some chat about uh, if you drink really hot tea. I think we covered this on a previous episode. If you drink really hot tea, you have a higher risk of upper GI malignancies and things. So did they find an increased link with esophageal cancer? Yeah, I think it was... It was... I think that was in Chinese men in squamous cell carcinomas of esophageal. Um, and they thought it was probably related to the thermal inju- injury. So, you know, there's a reasonable theory of why it might be more dangerous. Um, interestingly, with this data, people who enjoyed their tea hotter actually appeared to have an even greater mortality benefit. And the authors discussed this and they thought it's probably related to if you're having really hot tea, um, or you know, you're using really boiling hot water, you may be drawing out more of the polyphenols from the tea leaves. Although, of course, this is just speculation. But I did not see any obvious um, esophageal cancer risk or increase. Okay, given that you work in an office now, Barney, I'm guessing this is practice changing for you, or sorry, <laughs> practice brewing. You've got plenty of time for cups of tea. Oh, no. Um, yeah, yes, yes, of course it is. I mean, I, I don't think the majority of the UK population probably need any encouragement to drink tea, black or green or other. Uh, I think I think it's really reassuring that actually tea looks like it's you know, probably good for you. We can't say for certain. This is observational data, isn't it? But it's probably good for you. Um, and has it changed my practice? You know, it might have. I think I'm now more likely to drink a cup of tea during work um, when perhaps I would have had a herbal tea otherwise. Mm. You know, so there we go. Um, I'd love to know about some sort of synergistic effects if you drank tea and coffee because they have, they contain different things like different flavonoids, different polyphenols. And I wonder if it has a, you know, a synergistic benefit or not. Mm. But we don't know from this study. Right. What about, Barney, if I want to have a biscuit or a snack with my life-prolonging tea? You've got something oh. to say about that as well, haven't you? That's why, John, I'm going to look at another article, okay? And this is actually a diet paper published in the JAMA looking at time-restricted eating. So, you know, you may want to be drinking your tea, but do you want to be eating at the same time? Yeah, time restri- I'm glad you're talking about time-restricted eating, Barney, because I have actually tried this. So for those of you that aren't already keto bros, uh, time-restricted eating is a type of intermittent fasting. So it's essentially where the daily calories are all consumed within a specific time window, which is usually less than about 10 hours. And the rest of the time you don't eat or, well, you can drink like clear fluids and I think you have some coffee, but you basically don't eat anything, you're fasting. And 
there was like a big review article in the New England Journal, uh, I think it was like two years ago, which got a lot of traction. There's been numerous studies, albeit largely either small studies or in animals, and they've shown some benefit to weight loss, uh, insulin resistance, blood pressure, and sleep um, with time-restricted eating. And that's even if the total number of calories consumed doesn't drop, um, I'm adjusting for this diet. So I'm, I'm interested to see what this JAMA paper um, has shown. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. It has been a trend. Just out of interest, John, how how did you find it? Were you were you doing it for for weight loss or general health, or what was your? Uh, I uh, just to sort of see if it gave you a bit more energy for what? (laughs) Too much fatter after your holiday. I was trying to see if it would. um, Some people are quite evangelical about it. It says they like helps their concentration and things, and they just like feel great because they're ketotic. But I don't know. I quite like breakfast, so. Yeah, and I think breakfast, and lunch and dinner. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. I think breakfast is often the time for me to eat. Yeah, if you want to get lots of fiber in and fruit, that's usually often the time I eat a lot of that sort of thing as well. So then I'm kind of missing it. Um, but I like the idea of it. I'm. I worry if I do it that I might lose a bit more weight. You do not need you know, to lose weight. This is an entirely exactly. auditory experience. But Barney looks like he's dressing up for Halloween as a skeleton. Right, especially with a tiny bald head. Anyway, why does it why does it work, Barney? How does time street season um, work? Oh, that's a good question. So, look, I mean, there's loads of different proposed mechanisms, and again, a lot of um, a lot of theory and you know, physiology studies and things like that, a lot of animal studies. Um, but intermittent fasting it does a few things, and this is includes autophagy, aligning food intake with a circadian rhythm, um, improving your gut microbiome, amongst many others. Oh, I'm going to have to ask you what I always said autophagy, but you've said autophagy. So I've said autophagy. What is it? And I have no idea if that's right or not. I might be autophagy. So, like it sounds, it's a um, it's a type of cellular homeostasis. Okay, so autophagy is of eating yourself almost. So in this, your damaged molecules. This is putting it really simply for my simple brain. Your damaged molecules are eliminated and healthy cellular components are actually recycled in this process called autophagy. And this is, again, mainly based on animal studies. And this process is known to be linked to things like reduced cancer, reduced cardiovascular disease, diabetes, aging, etc. So they think it has loads of benefits and you get it from periods of fasting. Mm. Yeah. And fasting itself is quite interesting. There's some evidence I've read in the past that alongside certain treatments, such as chemotherapy, if you fast, you actually might get better outcomes for something like oncology. Uh, Obviously, way more trials needed and do not quote me on that. But it's an interesting space. So Barney, what did this uh, study in JAMA show? Yeah, great. So they took a cohort of uh, just 90 patients with obesity, and they were already undergoing a weight loss management program. Um, which included reducing calorie intake. They were split into two groups, one who only ate in an eight-hour window between seven o'clock in the morning and three o'clock, because, and they, they decided to go for this time because they felt it fitted more with the circadian rhythm. And the other group, which could eat calories restricted, but over 12 hours or more window, okay? And the trial was for 14 weeks, so not very long. So the time-restricted group, managed to adhere to the time-restricted eating on average about six days a week. So pretty good. Only one day a week, they actually sort of failed it. Both groups had similar total calorie intake overall and similar daily physical activity. So the groups were fairly equal over the period of time. Both groups lost weight because they were both on a weight program. Um, 
4 kilograms in the control group over 14 weeks and 6.3 kilograms in the time-restricted eating group, which was significant. Bear in mind, this is just over three months. It's not a huge amount of time. Both diastolic and systolic blood pressure reduced in the time-restricted group by about 4 millimetres of Hg, although this was only significant in the diastolic group due to the high variance with the systolics. Mood, fatigue and sleep improvements were all significantly better in this time-restricted group. And blood tests for metabolic factors such as insulin, they didn't really find a difference. But again, it's a very short study. So, so what does this actually mean for our patients or for us maybe? It looks like time-restricted eating alongside calorie reduction is well tolerated, appears more effective than calorie reduction alone, and may have other crucial benefits such as reducing blood pressure more than just calorie restriction and improved mood and sleep, which are, you know, quality of life mm. and, and crucial. I do not have a handle on the uh, future studies being done in this, but I would be, uh, I would put money on the fact there'll be more and more trials coming out about time-restricted eating, I'm sure. Loads. Yeah. yeah. And, and they're all looking at different ways, but it's actually, there's many ways you can do it. And there was another study um, came out a few months ago, uh, which compared people could eat whatever they want, but one group was in time restricted and one was just normal. Um, sorry, one group was you know calories restricted and one group could eat whatever they want, but in a time restricted way. And they both over a year lost the same amount of weight. So um, you can actually eat more calories, but if you're time restricted, you can still lose a bit of weight. So there's loads of different ways of looking at it, but there certainly does seem to appear to be some benefits. Mm. Okay, Barney, I'm going to allow you one more diet-related... Thank you, thank you. Right, um, I found a really interesting article, which hopefully well, a lot of people will relate to, and it's about vitamin supplements. Um, out of interest, John, do you, do you take vitamin supplements regularly? or No, Barney, if I wanted to flush money down the toilet, I would just do that instead. I don't know. I just, I think they're a waste of money. And I hope this article is going to confirm that. That's really interesting. Do you think they're a waste of money? Because, yes. um, yeah, like I kind of always, since turning vegetarian, not quite vegan, but we sort of, yeah, um, we've, we've thought we probably should take some supplements along with that. But as time got on, I'm just done less and less and less. And yes, it'd be nice. It would be, it's good to try and get some evidence behind all these sorts of things. So this was a review by the US Preventive Services Task Force on Vitamin Supplementation to prevent cardiovascular disease and cancer. 84 studies, 750,000 patients, and they would produce this report as uh, the US alone spends some $10 billion on vitamin supplements with very little evidence supporting them. Yeah, um, so people take supplements for a whole host of reasons, don't they, Barney? And, and there was quite a nice editorial accompanying this uh, that outlined some of these points. So uh, firstly, yes, there's good advertising, plugging natural solutions to people people's ailments. Secondly, there's a real tendency for people to think, well, a bit of vitamin C is good for me, so a lot must be great for me. Uh, third, there's like a desire for people to do something to improve their health rather than stopping smoking or eat more veg or you know cook healthy food, all the good stuff. They just think it's easier to take an, a pill as an alternative. And I guess finally, the, the final point the editorial makes is there's likely a placebo effect from taking a pill which has been sold as kind of natural, healthy or life-blowing. You know, and a whole host of other bullshit that people get fed. <laughs> Absolutely. And as we know, and as we've covered before, the placebo effect is very real and very powerful. Um, so I won't delve into 
every part of this, this big sort of um, review, but the outcomes are interesting. In patients without known deficiencies, multivitamins appear to have a very slight protective effect against cancer. But the odds ratio nearly crosses one, and as stated in the paper, the evidence was not of good quality, so they really weren't convinced. Vitamin D and vitamin E both showed no benefit regarding all-cause mortality, cancer risk, or cardiovascular risk. Finally, beta-carotene, um, plus or minus vitamin A in the, in, the, in the pill or combination, actually led to an increased risk of lung cancer with an odds ratio of 1.2 and cardiovascular mortality with an odds ratio of 1.1, which actually is kind of startlingly significant. And I don't know the pathophysiology behind that, um, but interesting. And they were pretty convinced that that actually was reasonable evidence that that, that occurred. Evidence for benefit of other supplements was equivocal, minimal, or absent. There was also limited evidence that other supplements could cause harm, including increased hip fractures with vitamin A, increased hemorrhagic stroke with vitamin E, kidney stones with vitamin C, and calcium. Again, it is worth noting these are preventative studies and not people who have known or suspected deficiencies, in which case these vitamins may be very important. The task force essentially makes the point that routine supplementation is either pointless, provides really minimal benefit, or actually can cause quite serious harm. Yeah, and I'd add to that also, they distract people from doing things that actually benefit their health. So if you think you're taking a vitamin for something, and that means that you're not doing something else that does actually do some good, like go go exercise, stop smoking, all yeah. that sort of stuff, then... I would say they do harm. Uh, so, Barney, based on this, uh, are you still going to take supplements? What, what are you going to take? <laughs> um, I, I was actually at an interesting lifestyle medicine conference the other day, BSLM, and there, you know, there were some real people like going. Actually, there are some supplements which we should be taking. So it's interesting, kind of going from that to this. Um, I think for me, I I probably will take the occasional vitamin D over winter, but I I probably will leave it at that. Um, and, you know, as long as I'm just, you know, hopefully I'll continue to have a healthy diet and that will, you know, that will do the rest. What about you, John? Absolutely not. <laughs> Maybe vitamin Fine. D. Vitamin D is not a bad idea. Yeah, that's the yeah, only one which I'm probably a bit more, you know, fine with. Brilliant. Okay, well, look, that, guys, that is all my diet stuff. And so going from uh, you know, the gut to the heart, we're going to go to John's favourite, favourite love of his life. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you tell us, John. So thank you for the introduction, Barney. I'm going to bring us back to a topic slightly more relevant to those of you that are stomping the corridors of a new hospital with a bleep going off so often you, quote unquote, accidentally drop it in the loo just for a bit of respite. That is a true story. Um, yeah. I'm going to talk about AF, uh, two letters that I think sometimes do send shivers down the spines of juniors optors around the world. Now, as a rule, I would always advise saying the full term atrial fibrillation. It sounds a bit more professional and I think it avoids people thinking you're just trying to be down with the cool kids and calling the pulse fast AF. If you're unsure of that reference, then check Urban Dictionary. So, uh, Barney, picture the scene. It's your last couple of weeks doing general medicine before you swan off to shove tubes down people's windpipes and tell people to inhale things a lot. You're seeing a man uh, who's 75. He's ready for discharge. And he's had a one-week admission with a community-acquired pneumonia has a background of hypertension. On admission, he was in atrial fibrillation, which reverted to sinus rhythm uh, after 24 hours spontaneously. The question that sat on the ward round is to reduce his stroke risk, should this gentleman be on an anticoagulant? What do you think? 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting and it's so common. And we've seen so many people who come in with infection. And I'm going to go out there and say, if you are convinced that this person's AF was related to their infection and had now resolved, I think, yeah, I think I would be tempted. And I think most people would, would have been tempted not to send them home on anticoagulation and sort of said, well, look, if it happens again, um, then we will. You might you might consider doing a halter test or something like that when they go home. Right. Well, sit tight, Barney. <laughs> oh, I'm sitting tight. Okay. Um, anyone who knows, anyone who spent some time on the medical take knows that pneumonia and AF love to hang out together. They're like the best buddies. Almost 10% of patients with pneumonia will develop AF at some time. So that's a lot. And yeah, pneumonia is incredibly common. Think of all the patients with pneumonia, about one in 10 will get it. I've heard before on post-tip ward rounds, ah, you know, that AF is driven by infection. Treat the infection, the AF disappears, done, sorted. No further investigations needed. But I think, as John's going to go into, is this true or does AF related to infection actually warrant more serious investigation and perhaps treatment? So yeah, Barney, thanks for teeing up the question. So to try and answer it, a Danish group performed a retrospective cohort study, uh, kind of like a data linkage study that screened all adults in Denmark. Yes, the whole country of Denmark. And they identified patients admitted with community-acquired pneumonia, and they divided them into two groups, those that had new onset AF when they developed pneumonia, and those that had pneumonia but did not have AF. Now, the patients with AF were not ones that were started on oral anticoagulants. And if you were on an oral anticoagulant, you got excluded from the cohort. So they looked at the next three years of follow-up and they found the following. If you had new onset AF with your community-acquired pneumonia, you were at 50% greater risk of developing a stroke than those that did not have AF. So this idea that the, the AF is just associated with infection and doesn't really matter is completely blown out of the water because actually these patients that have AF that have a community-acquired pneumonia are 50 times higher at having a risk of stroke in the subsequent three years. So without oral anticoagulant therapy, new onset atrial fibrillation was associated with a 2.1% one-year risk of arterial thromboembolic events. That's 1.4% in those with intermediate stroke risk and 2.8% in those at high risk. That's your one-year risk of having a stroke which is above 1%, which if you remember correctly, that is actually the threshold for starting oral anticoagulant therapy that we use with the transvascular. A third point is that basically one third of the patients had new hospital AF diagnoses that were made during the three years of follow-up. So in that cohort, if people had AF and a community-acquired pneumonia and were discharged, a third of them in the subsequent three years would come back with AF, essentially. Yeah. I, you know what? I suppose it's not, in my mind, actually, it kind of seems... Not that surprising, but we always sort of wish, hope that it's going to be okay. And because there isn't this sort of evidence that we've uh, we've maybe ignored it. I'm not sure, did they talk about uh, anticoagulant bleeding risk at all or anything like that? No, not not really. But I guess then at that point, you just, ter- you just are getting to the point where you're just weighing up the pros and cons of anticoagulation versus stroke risk, which is basically the same thing that we do all the time anyway with AF. Yeah, exactly. And- Well, I think what's important here is that often people are scared of starting anticoagulation because they think they're increasing someone's risk of stroke. But the evidence that we're getting from this study is that the AF that we're seeing with community-acquired pneumonias is totally relevant to future AF. So I think there are a couple interesting takeaways from this. So firstly, we need to change how we think about AF and infection. Rather than infection driving AF and then it going away and infection you know, resolving and AF resolving. Maybe infection is a stress test 
for patients that are already at high risk of developing future atrial fibrillation. And it's just bringing it out in patients that at some point have a heart, which is probably going to go into AF. And the other important point is I think new onset AF during a community-acquired pneumonia has a stroke risk over one year, which is basically above the threshold for starting anticoagulant therapy in someone that has you know, an intermediate risk of stroke, which is basically a Chad's VASC of one or two, right? So you just need hypertension. And all of a sudden your risk of stroke in the next year is as high as what the threshold we use for anticoagulant therapy. So given the high risk of developing future AF, I think it's really important that these patients are monitored really closely uh, on discharge and that we don't just ignore the fact that they've gone into AF. So either you're putting a plan in place to monitor for future AF or you're just anticoagulating the patient because their Chad's VASC is, is high enough. Thanks for that. Yeah, that's really clear. Yeah. Good. So um, I'm going to give us another similar sort of scenario, actually, Barney, which is kind of risk factors for atrial fibrillation. I'm going to take the same patient, but imagine that one year prior to his admission with community wide pneumonia, he was admitted for an inguinal hernia repair. And during the post-operative period, he has about 48 hours of atrial fibrillation. And you get a call from the anesthetist. Um, so he's found time somehow between Sudokus to call you. And they ask, now, why the hell did you choose to be a medical registrar? Oh, and by the way, uh, what do I do about this AF? I love those sort of conversations. I passed a friend, a friendly anaesthetist who I haven't seen for a while just today. And, you know, he was just like swanning down the corridor, looking very cool. He had a really cool scrubs on. I was like, yeah, you look cool. You look very chilled. Anyway, um, look, yeah, actually, what I would do to this rude anaesthetist, because we, we are the you know, glorified medical registrars, I'd politely remind them that they are just a glorified syringe and gas machine. Well, like AF related to community-acquired pneumonia, we're basically asking here, is there something different or unique about post-operative atrial fibrillation? You know, is it just the operation and the stress of the operation that tips you into AF? The operation stops, you get better. Does the AF disappear? Or actually, does the AF possibly recur? You know, what is that patient's risk of stroke? Is the, is the stressor of surgery just transient? So to try and look at this question, we have a cohort study, which was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine by Siontis et al. And they looked at about 4,000 patients who developed atrial fibrillation over a three-year period over the whole county, over a whole county in Minnesota in America. And they divided this cohort into those that had perioperative AF, which was AF within 30 days of non-cardiac surgery, and those that had non-operative AF. Now, the first thing to note from the findings is that the rates of subsequent stroke or TIA and all-cause mortality did not differ significantly between the two groups over five years. So whether your AF was related to an operation or whether it was not related to an operation, there was an 11% risk of stroke, TIA, all-cause mortality in the subsequent five years. That's across the whole, whole cohort. Okay. okay. Um, I mean, that's important, isn't it? Uh, so people with post-operative AF in this group are just as likely to have a stroke or die as people who did not have AF during the operation. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. Now, AF recurrence was slightly lower in the perioperative group. So 51% had recurrence in the perioperative group versus 65% in the non-operative group. But that actually still means that over half of the patients with perioperative AF have a recurrence. Now, this surely indicates, like pneumonia-related AF, that post-operative AF should be considered really carefully and thought of as a marker of the risk for future AF rather than just this like transient thing that happens. The authors then looked at an interesting subgroup for which they had data on anticoagulation prescription, and they found that there was much lower use of oral anticoagulation. And there was a greater delay in the prescription being issued in the perioperative AF group. 
Surprisingly, or not surprisingly, if you know any anesthetists, only 50% of patients with perioperative AF and a chance VASC of greater than two received any anticoagulation in that follow-up period. So only, only 50% went away with it. So that's quite important. All right, John, what, how might this change what you would do with these patients? Well, I, I'm going to caveat the findings of both studies by just emphasizing that they're both retrospective. They both rely on good data collection and coding, which we know isn't always the case. And they're also done in particular settings, so they might not necessarily be generalizable to other settings. But for perioperative AF or postoperative AF, there's definitely a signal from this study that it's prognostically as significant as any other AF. And that I think clinicians should think quite carefully about either monitoring for future AF or really seriously considering whether these patients should be anticoagulated, you know, during that episode of atrial fibrillation. And I think the same is true for um, AF related to community acquired pneumonia. I think we need to get out of this idea that these are atrial fibrillation episodes that are caused by transient stresses. If you remove the stresses, the atrial fibrillation goes away. I think we need to see them as these are patients that are at high risk of developing AF now and in the future. And if they've had an episode during a stressor, that probably means they're going to have AF in the future. Just out of interest, John, so you've got those, these patients, they're on discharge. Are you, um, say that Chad's FASC is two or three, uh, you know, this is this is the question. So say you went for the monitoring route, what would be an appropriate monitoring? Do we know that? Maybe not. Uh, yeah, I think it would, yeah, we don't, yeah, we, the answer is we definitely don't know. I mean, if you're trying to capture like a transient episode of atrial fibrillation, that's difficult. We have like five day halter yeah. monitors that you could do. Um, to be honest, if someone had a chance of ASCA of two or three and no other bleeding risks and they'd come in with pneumonia and developed AF, I would have a very low threshold now for starting someone on anticoagulation with that, with yeah. the data that we have now. And, you know, with the DOAX, you know, um, Apixaban, et cetera, um, slightly less risk than warfarin, slightly less interruption of their life, getting the INRs and things like that. So, so maybe, maybe we should be a bit more, uh, lenient with prescribing them. Yeah. yeah. And I think we get a bit nervous about prescribing them because of bleeding risk but yeah. my god should we be nervous about somebody having a one percent risk of stroke in the next year right like we see a lot of patients with pneumonia or like I say a lot of patients with af and pneumonia one in ten of them is probably going to have a stroke in the next year so i think we should be pretty yeah. nervous about that but the thing is it's not something that we then are intervening with right we're afraid of giving the anticoagulants because we're doing something but actually the lack of action might lead to a stroke so yeah. one in a hundred wasn't it sorry one in a hundred not one in ten <laughs> Yeah, but we see, we see, yeah, we, one in ten having a stroke. Like, gosh, that's you know, that's yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, one in a hundred, which is still we see easily see plenty of those in in a in a year. So yeah, good stuff. I'm done with AF. Well, not for it. Not you're done now. <laughs> yeah, for the next few weeks. Brilliant, John. Thanks so much for going through that. I think that's really interesting. You know, important take home points there, which people are going to go home and think about. And go on, give me some glowing feedback on my diet studies. I'm glad you've told me that I should not take any vitamins. <laughs> Brilliant. I, I, I'm really, I'm actually really happy you've uh, brought up the time restricted eating because I think we are not going to hear the end of that. I think that is coming, and I think we need to get better at speaking to our patients about how they can lose weight. Because my God, mm. do a lot of them need to lose weight? Absolutely, and we're all looking for that sort of that thing which can not only just lose weight but actually is good for them in other ways and. I know some people anyway, and there is some evidence coming that it actually will benefit them in whole loads of ways. So stop the blue vitamins, do some time-restricted eating, and drink lots of tea. Lots of tea. And it doesn't even, and even, even if they have a sugar, it's okay. <laughs> On that note, Barney. 
think we'll uh, buy us a coffee and uh, okay. we'll see you next time for the next roundup. Thanks very much, John. You take care of something. All the best. Bye. See ya. Bye. You have been listening to Journal Spotting with your hosts, Dr. Barnaby Hirons and Dr. Jonathan Hudson. Information and links from the show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com, on Twitter at journalspotting, Facebook or Instagram. Special thanks goes to St. George's Healthcare and HEE for their generous grant. If you've liked today's podcast, subscribe and leave a review. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch via our webpage, our email, journalspotting at gmail.com or tweet us. Disclaimer time, this podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, the experience of our guests and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or yourselves.